Well, welcome everybody. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome everybody here in the room, outside in the tent, and watching online. Uh, you know, the, the last two weeks, we've, we've felt led to address the issue of mental health, specifically depression and anxiety. And we've been looking through the scriptures to see what does the Bible say about the issue of mental health. And, you know, it's been unusual the amount of response that we've gotten. We've gotten quite a bit of response, emails, text messages, uh, letting us know that, man, we're going through depression right now, or I'm feeling anxious right now, or I went through depression and I totally uh, agree with what you're saying, or I know somebody who's battling it right now. And so we really sense the Lord really leading us in this direction, and I feel compelled to give one more message, and let me show you in a bit where, where I'm going to go today. Um, when I spoke about this topic two weeks ago, someone in the church had uh, messaged me and reached out and said, Pastor Greg, I've experienced the darkness of depression several times throughout my life. It truly is a fierce spiritual battle. And then she writes this. She says, if there is anybody in the church that you could match me up with so that I can talk to them and pray with them, I would really appreciate it. And I, and I love that because here's somebody who has gone through that suffering but realizes that God's not going to waste my suffering. Like he is not going to waste it. He, he's not the author of my depression, but he's going to be the redeemer of it. And he's going to now use me to minister to somebody who's going to go through similar things I went through. And so she sends me this email. Well, in God's timing, the next morning, I open up my inbox, and I get this email from a man in our church. And he says, Pastor Greg, my wife, for the past week and a half, has not been able to sleep very well. And she was diagnosed with severe depression and anxiety. Can you help? And he asked for a counselor reference. He asked for prayer. And I was able to give him a Christian counseling reference, and then I said, I also have somebody else I want you to talk to. And I was able to connect her with this person who had emailed me the night before. They have since gotten together since then, and they have both told me it has been a very helpful and encouraging time for them. I love that. But here's what's also powerful about that story. That weekend when that couple heard the message, they said, Pastor Greg, we were in tears together because of God's perfect timing. It was exactly what we needed to hear. But what's crazy is they weren't even in town. They weren't even at church that weekend. So how did they hear it? Well, somebody in their life group whom they shared their situation with heard the message, reached out to them, even though they were on vacation, and said to her, I think you need to listen to this message. I think it'll be helpful. And why is that powerful to me? Because you have this lady who's battling depression and anxiety. She has a husband reaching out for help for her. You have a person who has gone through it before sharing encouragement and empathy with her. You have a life group member who's sending God's truth to her. That's church. That's what church should look like. And that's why we keep calling you guys, come back. Let's gather together. Let's get together. Why? Not just so we feel good that the seats are filled. No, that is bigger than that. In large part, this is how victories are won, when the church comes together and becomes as the church should be, and we reflect the church. In large part, victory is won when we're able to share together and gather together and pray together and care for one another and fight for each other. And so I'm compelled to give 
one more message on this topic, and this time it's addressed to those of you who may not be dealing with depression and anxiety right now. Because the chances are you know somebody who is. And there's some of you guys right now, oh, another one, a third week in a row? I'm not even going through this. It's not relevant to me. I want to say, no, this message is actually for you. This is for you. Right, because you might know somebody. Maybe you have a son in high school. Maybe you have a daughter in college. Maybe you have a spouse, a husband or a wife who's battling depression. Maybe you have a coworker or neighbor who's going through anxiety. And the question is, how do we come alongside them and love them well? I can guarantee you there is somebody in this church who needs you to be the church right now. And so this message is for you. I want to turn you to Mark chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please get ready. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 today. And I want to give you three powerful things to remember from this story, three powerful things to remember, especially as you help someone battling depression and anxiety. So let's pray. Let's bow before the Lord and ask him to lead us into his truth. Let's pray. Father God, we ask right now that you would open our eyes to your words, to the spiritual truth that we can gain. God, I pray that you help us to resist any temptation right now to think that this message is irrelevant to me and I don't need to listen because I'm not going through it right now. And I pray, the Lord, that you would burden our hearts for those who are hurting and struggling and suffering, God. I pray that it's in, in a moment like this where you are molding us to be the church that you designed us to be, that we would reflect your heart and your love and your compassion for those who are hurting and suffering. God, speak to us in very specific ways. Give us names, uh, put, put people on our hearts to care for, to love. I pray that as we go into this story, you would make this story come to life. Bring us there. God, give us compassion. Give us mercy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 2, let me bring you through this story. I want to first start off with the first three verses, and it goes like this. It says, and then he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. You can pause right there. So let me explain to you what's going on. So here's this guy whose body has been afflicted. He's a paralytic, meaning he's paralyzed. He can't can't walk. His legs don't move. And so he's got four friends in his life who are committed to helping him, who care about him. And the the news is, the buzz going on is that Jesus is in town. Jesus is nearby, and and Jesus, by this time, people have heard about how he's delivered demoniacs, how he's liberated lepers, how he set people free from fevers. And and you could go back to Mark chapter 1. This is only Mark chapter 2, and they're already hearing this stuff. Go back to Mark chapter 1, and he's done all those things. And so his friends must be thinking right now, guys, this could be it. If this Jesus is the guy they say he is and he's doing the things they say he's been doing, this could be it for our buddy. Our buddy might be able to walk again. And you don't see that in their words. It's not there in the text, but you read that in their actions, right? Because 
these four friends, what do they do? They are committed to this paralytic, and they haul this guy. They're hauling him across town to get to this house where Jesus is. Now think about that. Think about the commitment in that. They had to carry this, this man. Have you ever had to carry a man across town? They didn't have no ambulances. There were no Ford F-150s, no Dodge pickup trucks. They just had their Chevrolet legs. That's all they had. <laughs> I know my, my kids say my jokes are cringy. I don't even know what that means. But, 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 but they, they had to walk to this house. Why would they do such a thing? Why? Well, because they recognized something about themselves. We're not physicians. We're not doctors. But our friend desperately needs one. Now, I understand this story is not about a man struggling with depression and anxiety. I get that. But understand this, that depression and anxiety is often both a spiritual and a physical bodily affliction. Because the reality is, the truth is, there is a real devil who wages a spiritual war on our minds. True. But there's also a physical brain that can often have chemical imbalances or there could be a failure in the chemical messaging process between nerve cells. That's also true. And though there's oftentimes a spiritual aspect to it and also a physical aspect to it. Because we live in a spiritually fallen world and we also live in a physically faulty body. It's mortal. It's perishable. And so I want to say to you, one of the best things you can do for a loved one who's battling depression and anxiety, one of the best things you can do is to stop and remember, you're not a doctor. Write this down. Would you write this down? Write this down. Remember, you're not a doctor. Unless you are, then I apologize. But, but if you are, you're a doctor. But this, this is to everybody else, and this is the majority of people in the room watching online. You're not a doctor. And if you're not a doctor, then help them identify if they need to see one, a physician or a trained counselor or therapist, and do what you can to bring them to the best and nearest one you can find. That's love right there. Instead of merely telling them how to change their diet or what activities to pick up or what exercises to try or what meds work for you, which isn't bad, go ahead and do those things, but instead of merely doing that, why don't you help them find a trained medical doctor or counselor or therapist who can provide an informed treatment? Somebody who, by the grace of God, whether they acknowledge that or not, has received the education and the training to give an informed treatment. Mark chapter 2, the four friends brought this paralyzed man to the nearest and best physical physician that they heard about that they could find. And in their case, it happened to be Jesus of Nazareth. I don't even know if they know the fullness of who he is yet, but to them is Jesus of Nazareth. So let's get him to, to, to Jesus. Now, they're blessed to have Jesus in town. Today, unfortunately, we don't have Jesus in the flesh operating out of a house or a physical address. If, if he was here, get them to him. But unfortunately, we don't have Jesus in the flesh and a physical address, so the next best option will be a trained medical professional or ther therapist who can make the right recommendations and point them in the right direction and maybe prescribe physical treatment, which includes, as we said last week, medication, which is not evil. And so get rid of any thought that that, that is a lack of faith or it's, it's sinful or evil to turn to medication. 
It's not any more sinful than, than me taking Tylenol for my headache I had this past week or a brother who's, on, who's going through chemotherapy because of his cancer. God, is, God overall, he's behind science and all that is true. Not theoretical, all that is true. And so like the paralytic's friends, you can show incredible love and care when you help assist a person to get to a physician. Starting about four weeks ago, my son, Evan, he's 10 years old. He's been having these severe stomach pains. So severe, he would hunch over and start crying, even sometimes yelling in tears, crying out because it hurts so bad. And as he's hunched over, you know, we, we've had to do something. We've made numerous trips this past month to the ER. Even when we were out of town, we've been to the Indio Urgent Care and the Indio ER. We've made several trips to the South Bay Harbor City ER. We, we've made trips to the Children's Hospital uh, in Long Beach ER. We've been in the ER a lot this, this month, trying to figure out what in the world is going on in my son's body. And of the several doctors we saw and, and talked to, none could give us a definitive answer to what my son was experiencing, trying to figure out what is going on. And what they told us was, ultimately, you need a pediatrics GI specialist. That, that's the guy who's going to be trained to tell you what's going on in your son's body. And I'll tell you this. Some of the most comforting acts of compassion and love was coming from our friends who would intentionally help us find a doctor who could help Evan. Pastor Gary, he made a phone call to a former member of our church. He used to be on our elder board. And he connected me, got me on the phone with Dr. Roddy, who is a GI doctor. And I got to talk to, GI, to Dr. Roddy, and uh, he was able to set us up with the best pediatrics GI that he knew. My other friend, Mike, who learned of my son's situation, didn't tell me. He didn't ask me. I had no knowledge of it. But he started tapping into his connections and the people he knew. And he started calling around and asking, who's the best PGI doctor we can find? And he sends me a text. He says, this is the guy. I found out this is the guy. And when I saw the guy that Mike gave me and, and, and the name that Dr. Roddy gave me, it was the same guy. And that gave these anxious parents tremendous peace and confidence that our son was going to be in the right hands. Much of the prevailing peace that we experienced, that Monica and I experienced, came from the help of our friends caring to get us connected to a physician, a doctor, the best they could find. So listen, if you have a loved one who's struggling with depression or anxiety, remember, you're not a doctor, so get them to one, okay? That's the first thing. Let's go on in the story, though. There's, there's a lot more to the story. Let's go to verse 4. The story goes on. Verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. Luke says they had to dig through the roof. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So you can stop right there. So needless to say, this house is packed. Like heads and bodies all over the place, so much so that when these four men with their paralytic friend got to the house, they couldn't even see Jesus. We can't even see past the crowd. So what do they do? They're still committed, and they haul this guy, and they lug him up the stairs. There's a outside stairs that lead to the roof, and they're dragging this guy up the stairs to the rooftop. And so they're there on the rooftop, and I can imagine the scene. I can see the, the ringleader of the four 
And he turns to his buddies, he's, and he's, he must be saying, all right, guys, you ready to get this party started? Because we are going to bring this house down. Not, we're not going to raise the roof. We're going to bust the roof. We're going to tear it through the roof, and we're, we're going to get on our knees, and we're going to start digging. And so these go, guys, and they're on their knees, and they start digging through this, this roof, digging through that hard, compact mud that formed the roof of this house. And you could just imagine the commotion as they're scratching and digging and heeing and hawing. Jesus is just trying to teach the word, and there's this commotion going on. It's kind of like, man, I was thinking about, as I read this story, I was thinking about when I was young, and um, maybe you guys did this too, but when you're in the sandbox with your kids or you're at the beach and you guys are digging holes as deep as you can go. I remember when I was in preschool, I had my friend, David Lee, and we would, we would be on different sides of the sandbox and we'd dig and we'd be like, hey, let's connect our holes, and we'd try to make these underground tunnels. And we'd be digging. Did you guys ever do this? And you're digging, digging, trying to make tunnels. And then all of a sudden, that, that, that joy, that thrill, that exhilaration, when what? When you feel what? Fingers. Right? I feel your fingers, David. Keep going, keep going. And then when you realize there's breakthrough and you've connected and I could grab David's arm, we, we've connected. That's what it must have felt like as, as they're digging through this, this roof, and all of a sudden, boom, the first signs of breakthrough. I, I, I see something, guys. I, I see heads. I see heads. Never have they been so happy to see a bald head, and, and I see dandruff and oily hair. Keep going, keep going, and guys, I think that's him. That's Jesus. Keep going, keep going, and they're digging until they can fit their friend through that hole. And I know you've seen the cute little Sunday school illustrations where, where somehow they had this huge wide opening where they could nicely lower him in. No, I don't think so. As soon as it's big enough, you're going in, buddy. Wrap him up, time to the mat. We're stuffing in him. And he, he's like, no, you're not. No way, Hosea. They're like, shut up. Voomp. And they're like, get in there. And they're getting him in. We don't have time. We need to get him to Jesus. And they're getting him in this hole because Jesus is right there. What's that like? You're trying to, you're sitting in the room. You're trying to listen to the teaching of God's word, and then all of a sudden there's this distraction. Some of you guys in this worship center, you know what I'm talking about. Have you guys ever heard that roof creak? Right there, yeah, the ceiling creak. It freaks you out, right? Everyone's like, what is that? It'll creak in that area right there, and I'll tell you why. There's a storage facility above this building, and that creaking you hear, it sounds like the roof is going to cave in. It's just, it's just a ramp, and that just means trucks and cars are driving up the ramp. That's all it is. And so when you hear that, the, the ceiling shouldn't cave in. <laughs> shouldn't cave in. Yeah, you're good. If you're worried, I got a perfect front row seat right here for you guys, okay? But, but it shouldn't cave in. But let's say you're sitting here and you're listening to the word of God and you hear a creaking. And all of a sudden it starts caving in. And you don't see a car come flying through, but you see feet dangling. Why in the world are there two feet hanging from the ceiling and all of a sudden those feet become a human being? A man is now strapped to a mat and he's swinging on this rope as he's being lowered in. What is that like? You're thinking, what in the world is going on right now? His eyes are open, confused. You're looking at, what's he thinking? What's he feeling, right? He's dangling here. You're looking at, what, is, what do you say if you're that man? 
what's that? Hi, can I hang out with you guys or what? And and all of a sudden, they start lowering him into the room until he plops right there, limp at the feet of Jesus. Jesus looks up through that hole, and he sees four heads peeking through. What's up, Jesus? What up, man? And he sees just their faces full of sweat and covered in dirt and full of smiles. Those are good friends. Those are good friends who can do whatever it takes to get you to Jesus. Are you those kind of friends? See, these friends, they recognized something about themselves. They knew who they were not. Not only were they not doctors, they got that. I think they also realized that we're not Jesus. We're not Jesus. Remember back in the day? Uh, remember these bracelets? We would rock these bracelets, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? And if you don't know what that, that, that means, it was kind of this thing to encourage you as you're going through the day and you have a decision to make to ask yourself, hold on, what would Jesus do? And then you just go and do likewise. Be like Jesus. Live like Christ. Simple, right? Wrong. It's not that simple. Why? Because you ain't Jesus. And there are things that Jesus would do that you just cannot do. Now imagine... I'm a basketball player. I really am not. I am not good at basketball. But I like to play. I, I try to play every Sunday. And let's say, you know, and the reason why I play, I, I want to get better. I want to get better at the game. But let's say for some inspiration, I, I rock a WWJD bracelet whenever I play to remind myself in any situation, what would Jordan do? What would Michael Jordan do in this situation, right? And I just got to think of what he would do because he's the greatest player. And so here I am. Let's say game is tied, game point, next basket wins, ball's in my hands. I'm nervous. My my heart is pumping. My palms are sweaty. What do I do now? Well, oh, what would Jordan do? I'll tell you what Jordan would do. Jordan would cross the guy over, break that guy's ankles, And as he's on the floor grabbing his ankles, Jordan's going to go for the hole, and he's going to see two defenders, and what is he going to do? He's going to rise above the defenders with his tongue sticking out, right? And as he's up, and they go up to block him, what's he going to do? He's going to descend. And while in midair, he'll switch it to the left hand, and then midair rise again, and then dunk on those fools, and they win the game. Buzzer goes off. He's going to jump six feet in the air and fist pump in the air. That's what Jordan would do. But it don't matter what Jordan would do. Why? Because I ain't Jordan. And I can't do that. I will never in my lifetime be able to do that. I could eat Wheaties all day. I could drink Gatorade. I could have my fresh Jordans on. And I will never be like Mike. It doesn't matter what Jordan would do. You ain't Jesus. And yes, there are ways we need to imitate him. And there's things we can do and should do. Imitate him in his love and his patience and his compassion. But at some point, we have to step back and realize there's some things I cannot do. I am not Jesus. The Bible talks about Jesus. Mark chapter 1, the chapter earlier, he goes to a leper who nobody wants to touch. 
He touches a leper and he heals the leper. You know what would happen if I would go and touch that leper? I'd get leprosy. Right? If it really was as contagious as they believed it was. Jesus took a blind man and he spit in the blind man's eyes. And the guy could see again. I always say this, but if I spit in a blind guy's eyes, what would happen? You'd have a pastor with two black eyes. Right? Why? Because you still got a man with two blind eyes just with a loogie in it now. Why, why is this pastor spitting in my eyes, dude? Right? And so we are not Jesus. And it's okay to acknowledge that. And so write this down. Here's another lesson to remember. You are not Jesus. You're not a doctor, but also remember you're not Jesus. And this is so important for me to say out loud. I know nobody's trying to be Jesus here. Like, not the actual Jesus. But it's so important for me to say this out loud because the reality is that when you have a son or a daughter who's struggling... When you have a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad who's battling, when you have a coworker or a neighbor who's, who's suffering from depression, anxiety, I know you want to fix it. I get it. You want to fix it so badly. You want to lift their clouds. You want to change their life. You want to restore their joy. You want to snap them out of their sadness. The reality is you can't snap them out of their sadness. You can't snap them out of depression any more than you can snap a person out of their migraine headache or snap a person out of their bout with cancer. You, you just can't do that. Who among us can do that? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And I know that your hearts are so big. I've met you guys, and you have so much love and compassion for others. But as big as your heart is, as much love as you have inside of you, you're not Jesus. In other words, you're not their savior. You're not their healer. You're not their redeemer. And you cannot fix them. So take a deep breath. In fact, let's do that right now. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, take a deep breath. Like literally take a breath. And release it. You know what that, this, that, that, that sound is? This, that's the sound of relief. As you relieve yourself of the pressure of having to be another person's savior. You're not Jesus. You don't have power to heal people who are paralyzed. You don't have power to heal, heal people who are paralyzed by fear and worry and grief and sorrow and sadness. But listen, believe with all your heart that Jesus can. Believe with everything you have that Jesus can. Now, let's go back to the story. Jesus is sitting here and he's teaching the word of God. And this guy just plops down at his feet. And Jesus, it says this. He looks up. And what's Jesus thinking? You guys are crazy, right? No, he's probably thinking more, you guys have crazy faith, and I love it. Because look what it says in verse 5. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This is crazy to me. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, because they believed I can heal, because they believe I can make the 
paralyzed man walk, be healed. Not because of what he saw in the man, but what he saw in them. This is crazy to me. Don't ever underestimate the role of your faith in that person's life. Don't ever underestimate your faith in the person who is struggling with depression and anxiety's life. Now, look at verse 5 again with me. This is interesting. Has anyone noticed what Jesus said? Jesus, it doesn't say that he saw their faith and said to the man, be healed, get up and walk. What does it say? It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He heals the man's heart. He doesn't heal the man's limbs. He heals the man's heart. Jesus, uh, that's not what we came here for. That's not what we came to you for. Why is Jesus healing the heart and not the man's limbs? Well, let's read on the rest of the story. I want to tell you what this story is really about. Verses 6 to 12 tells us what this is really about. It says this. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. We never saw anything like this. Why does Mark write this story? Why does he include this in his gospel? I'll tell you why. Because he's establishing the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God who has authority over all things. This is Mark chapter 2. Not everybody gets this yet. And so he's saying, no, Jesus reigns. He's over all things. He's the sovereign ruler over things that are both spiritual and physical. And so Jesus pronounces forgiveness over the man's sins, and he proves he has authority to do so by healing the man's limbs. Jesus proves his ability to heal a person spiritually by healing him physically. And he heals him physically to prove that he could heal us spiritually. In other words, Jesus is Lord over all. And if God can heal a man from the sin in his soul, then you know that he can also heal a man paralyzed in his arms and his legs. And if you could heal a man paralyzed in his arms and his legs, brothers and sisters, you better believe that Jesus can heal a person paralyzed in their head and their hearts, mentally and emotionally, from depression and anxiety. Jesus is the great physician. He is the greatest physician who can heal, heal the spiritual and the physical, for he is Lord over all. And so with crazy faith, here's my challenge to you. With crazy faith, bring your loved one to Jesus. How? In prayer. And no, this is not an obligatory mention of prayer. 
saying, hey, guys, let's pray before we move on to the real solutions and the real practical ways to help battle depression and anxiety. No, this is the single greatest thing you can do. This is not just something we need to say at church because we're in church. Everybody just stop. Just stop for a moment and dwell on the fact that this is the single greatest thing you can do, which is to bring your loved one before the throne of the Almighty, to bring your loved one before the feet of the all-powerful, to bring your loved one before the Son of God, who is the ruler over the brain and the body, over the head and the heart, over the spirit and the soul. Because remember, if depression and anxiety could be both a spiritual affliction of the heart and possibly a physical ailment in the brain, then what does prayer do? It says, Jesus, you're Lord over both. And whatever my, my son or my daughter or my mom or my coworker is going through, Jesus, you are Lord over both and you can heal both. And spiritually, we're saying when we pray to the Lord Almighty, he's the one who can cast out demons. He can cast out darkness by shedding his light. He can deal with deception by shedding his truth. And yet also we're saying physically, he's the one who ordains chemicals in the brain. And the messaging process between nerve cells, that belongs to you as well. And so when you pray for your friend battling depression or anxiety, you're saying, Jesus Jesus, work in my loved one. Adjust the levels of serotonin in their brain. Just the joy of salvation in their heart, if that's what they need. And admit, you don't know what they need. But Jesus does. And admit that you can't fix your friend. But Jesus can. And since you're not Jesus, bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus and with crazy faith believe that Jesus can heal. So remember, you're not a doctor, so point them to one. Remember, you're not Jesus, so bring them to him. But what is your role in this story? What is your role in your friend's story? Remember this. Here's the third thing I want you to write down. Remember, you are a friend. And the presence of a friend matters. You are their friend, and your presence matters. Mark, in the story, it's interesting. We know nothing about what's going in the heart of this paralytic man. Like, we don't know if he has faith in Jesus, if he has a desire to even see Jesus. We just know he's, he, he, he's paralyzed. And here's what we do know for sure. He couldn't bring himself to Jesus even if he wanted to. Fact. It's a fact. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. He was paralyzed. But thank God for his friends who were present in his life, who cared enough about him and were committed to him. And the reality is without their presence in his life, the paralyzed man would have never come to see Jesus. You have somebody in your life who may be so paralyzed physically or spiritually or mentally or emotionally, that they're not going to bring themselves to Jesus. They're just not feeling like opening the Bible, or they're not just feeling like talking to God right now. And I want to say your presence matters. I've heard and read several testimonies this week from people who have been battling depression or anxiety 
or people who have gone through it, and they've been sharing what's been helpful to them. That's what I've been trying to study all week because I'm trying to see what is actually helpful. I don't want to come up with theories, anything theoretical or what I think helps. What, what really helps? And I've read all these testimonies, and there's many common answers, but you know one of the most common answers across the board? Presence. Presence. And presence, I, I, I get it now, it's especially helpful to a person if their depression and anxiety is coming from a place of loneliness or rejection or isolation or worthlessness. And so listen, presence can be going to the doctors with the person instead of saying, hey, you need one. Presence can be praying with the person instead of saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Presence could, could, could be taking them out for a walk on the beach, taking them to, to work out with you at the gym, taking them to play ball or to ride a bike. Presence could be driving to their house, picking them up to give them a ride to church, knowing that they can't even get themselves out of bed. Presence. Are you a friend who is present? See, I don't know how you've experienced suffering in your life, but probably the most common question a person might ask in the midst of suffering is, God, where are you? Like, God, where are you? I wonder how many times this Man, this paralytic man in his suffering had turned to the heavens and said, God, where are you? One of the hardest things as a parent is to see your child suffer. It's way worse than suffering yourself. It's to see your child suffer. So for, for more than three weeks, every time my son Evan experienced another episode of pain in his stomach, it would wreck us. It would wreck us whenever we would hear him screaming in tears. It would wreck us when, when, when he was crying so bad, and I'm not sure if he's really telling the truth, and I ask him, if you don't stop crying, we're going to take you to the ER, and he says, yes, take me to the ER. I, I need a doctor. When your 10-year-old asks for a doctor, you know something is wrong. That wrecks us. I'll never forget the day when I would hear Evan crying out loud, audibly out loud in his tears and through his tears begging God, God, please heal me. God, I need you to do something. God, why aren't you doing anything? Why isn't this going away? And he's crying. And I, I, love, I love hearing my kids cry out to God. I really do. But that's not the crying out to God that I care to hear. And I'll never forget the day when, for the third time that day, my son says, Daddy, Daddy, will you pray over me? Can you just pray for me, Daddy? And I remember, I'll never forget this moment as he's hunched over in pain, and I'm trying to rub his stomach to make it feel better, and I'm trying to rub his back to help him to feel better. And as he's staring at the ground in tears, and I'm trying to make my son feel better, I'm looking up to the heavens. And underneath my breath, I'm saying, God, where are you? Like, where are you right now? Have mercy on him. He's a kid. I want to say, four weeks later, Evan is actually doing really good today. 
I, I feel like we, we, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're just about out of the woods. And so I want to thank everybody. If you've been praying for him, thank you for your prayers. But as Monica and I have asked, God, where are you? I believe God was answering. You know what's powerful through this whole thing, through this whole month? Members of our staff would stop by my office every day and say, hey, Greg, how's Evan? We're praying for him. And we would get texts from life group members and friends every single day saying, how's Evan? And they would text out a prayer to us. Members of our Tuesday night prayer meeting, the, the ones who gathered here in person, they texted me this one Tuesday night. They said, Greg, before we even started the meeting, we cried out. With our voices, we cried out on Evan's behalf that God would heal him. And that was powerful for me. I couldn't be at that meeting because I was at the ER. We were at Children's Hospital in Long Beach. We had been there for seven hours. I had to miss prayer meeting. We were there seven hours, and because of COVID, Monica and I couldn't be in the waiting room with him at the same time. Only one parent could be with him, and the other parent had to wait in the car, and so we would take two-hour shifts. And so I, I'm, I'm in the car. It's 10 p.m. I'm in the car, and I, I get a t I'm getting texts all day from people sending prayers. And then Pastor Caleb texts me. He says, are you still waiting in the ER? I said, well, we just switched. I'm in the car now. I'm in this dark street in Long Beach. Lights, there's no lights on the street. I'm just sitting in the dark. I said, I, I, I'm in the car now. And as we're texting each other, I see Caleb's car drive right by. And I text him. I say, yo, is that your car? I think I just saw you drive by. And then he pulls over. And then Ka Caleb and Catherine both get out of the car, and they walk over to me. And they had bought us drinks from my wife's favorite local boba shop. And they had brought it, they had driven it down to Long Beach to find us and to give it to us in person. So here I am with Caleb and Catherine. We're standing in the dark on, on this Long Beach street, and we're standing there, and they're standing there with me, and they're just talking to me. Many times this past month, Monica and I, we asked God, God, where are you? And I now realize... He's present. He's right there. He's present there in Caleb and Catherine. He's pre present there in our prayer meeting warriors. He's present there in our life group members. He's present there in, in my brother Daniel and Tracy who would watch our daughters as we stayed at the ER. He's present there in Pastor Gary te texting Dr. R Roddy. He's present there in Dr. Roddy as he prayed for my family over the phone. He's been more present than I realized. I don't know how many times the man in his paralysis must have cried out to God, God, where are you? But I'm willing to bet that after he got healed, he would testify God was there. He was present in my friends who brought me to the presence of Jesus. And so I say to you, remember, you're not a doctor. Remember, you're not Jesus, but remember, you're a friend, and your presence matters on the battlefield of the one who's battling depression and anxiety. Your presence, presence is evidence of God's presence to them. Amen? Let's be present. Would you guys bow your heads and pray with me?
And I want to ask you, if you're willing, would you just make a commitment to the Lord and just, just offer yourself right now? And say, God, would you use me to be present in somebody's life? Somebody who's struggling and feeling alone and isolated, use me. And let's commit as a church, let's be the church. That we would be the hands and the feet of Jesus and we would do the work here on earth to help people know the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Father God, we declare this is why we need each other. This is why we need to gather. This is why we're here on earth to make known your presence. And I pray that we would be committed to help the hurting, to fight with those battling. And I pray that we would see victories. I pray that we would see people set free. We would see people experience freedom. And so right now, I pray in Jesus' name, if there's anybody struggling right now, I pray that they would know your presence, that they would know your truth and stand on it, God. And if they don't, I pray that we would help them to see your truth, that we would help them to experience your presence through our compassion and our care. God, set people free. God, set people free. We believe you can. You are Jesus. We are not. And so we look to you. We worship you in Jesus' name.